It's been called the perfect romantic comedy, look-alike sister-brother twins, each thinking the other lost in a shipwreck, leading to a high-spirited tale of gender-bending, mixed-up love affairs. Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is on stage now at Two River Theatre in Red Bank, New Jersey. It's directed by Sarah Holdren, my guest today. I'm Susan Wolner for the Jersey Arts Podcast. Sarah, thanks for joining me. Of course, no problem. According to your bio, you're the artistic director and co-founder of the theater company Tilt Yard. You've directed a lot of Shakespeare, just recently The Merchant of Venice in Cleveland and The Winter's Tale for the Shakespeare Academy at Stratford. You've also been involved with Two River Theater's A Little Shakespeare program for young people. When did you first fall for Shakespeare, and do you find other young people sharing your passion? Yeah, I am. So I have been, uh, I think, a sort of card-carrying Shakespeare nerd probably about since, I'd say, I'd say in a literary sense since early middle school and then in a theatrical sense um, from about sophomore year of high school. Um, Both my parents are English majors, uh, English masters, um, met in in, um, an English grad program. Um, And when I was in, and and read a bunch of the plays to us as kids, actually, as um, there are these really wonderful editions of the plays for young people uh, that um, I think it's, um, oh, I can't remember. It, it's Mary, um, Mary Charles, Charles and Mary Lamb, I think, collected them. They're old. They're, you know, they're, not, they're not new, but they're sort of the plays as stories collected into books that you can read aloud. Um, my parents would read these aloud to us. Uh, so I was sort of already acquainted with a lot of these plays as stories. Um, and then in sixth grade, uh, I was cast in a little classroom production of Midsummer Night's Dream and kind of caught the bug for the language. Um, which really continued in sophomore year of high school when I went to a still-going and really incredible program at the American Shakespeare Center in Stanton, Virginia. Um, that uh, it's, a, it's a residential summer program for high school students uh, where you perform at their replica of the Blackfriars Playhouse and uh, you get to just immerse yourselves um, in these plays. You know, it's a, and I think it's a very specific kind of 16-year-old, you know, who goes for a, you know, overnight Shakespeare camp. Um, but, uh, but there were a lot of us there, and it was really, you know, it was a moment of finding your tribe and finding your people um, and really realizing that these stories and the particular kind of visceral poetry that they're written in um, was going to be a place where I lived for the rest of my life. Um, and I do think I still see young people really falling in love with them. I, I think there's always a, you know, there's always the chance that Shakespeare can be presented in a really off-putting way um, to anyone, you know, no matter the age, um, that there can be a lot of barriers to entry and that it can be presented in a very kind of eat-your-vegetables way, you know, like this is good for you, it's important, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's genius, you know, lots of words with a capital letter attached to them, you know. Um, but I think it's so wonderful when a teacher or a production uh, or an experience that someone, you know, no matter their age has with Shakespeare sort of manages to break through that and says, you know, no, it's not about these things being on a pedestal or part of some canon. Uh, it's about the fact that they really do have life and vigor and, um, and beauty and fun to them. Um, and that's still really vital and can be, uh, and, and, and is not 
going to be exhausted. You know, like they're, they're sort of infinite wells of investigation, whether you like working on them or you enjoy seeing them. This sort of segues with something I was going to ask you about anyway, because uh, I had read in an interview that you felt that there's too much focus on the playwright as sort of the top of the theater hierarchy here in America. And what Shakespeare does is there's always productions of Shakespeare out there. You know, it's the Mm -hmm. ultimate vehicle for interpretation. Like, doesn't matter how many times you've seen Hamlet, you want to go see Hamlet again, because like, what's this new person going to do with Hamlet? Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's sort of also why you're attracted to it. It it certainly is. I mean, as a as a director, um, and and also as a director who really believes that directing is a kind of authorship, um, and you know, and not uh, not superior to the authorship of a playwright, but in tandem, you know, a kind of co-authorship of the living event, um, and not a a kind of midwifery, <laughs> but but really a sort of you know. Uh, a writing after the writing, you know, a new writing of, of what comes to be in the space with bodies and with, um, you know, all of the elements of design and with the sort of, you know, living material uh, that really does make a play on the page into a production. Um, being a director who believes that, I think, yeah, Shakespeare is the ultimate playground. I mean, it's always so freeing to work, fr- quite frankly, in the public domain, right? You know, to work with a text that, uh, that really is a place where you can get in and get, you know, sort of roll up your sleeves and go in up to the elbows and get your hands dirty. Um, and that is going to be receptive and, um, and elastic, you know, and allow for, as you're saying, all sorts of different interpretations. I'll, I'll never forget I had a... Um, <laughs> I had a 10th grade English teacher who we were reading Othello in class and, and someone was, you know, bored and talking at the back of the class. And I remember she just pointed at this kid and yelled, you know, talk all you want, but Othello will outlive you. <laughs> and, and it was this, like, amazing moment for me where I thought, she's right. You know, like, these characters and these plays will sort of, you know, whether we, no matter how we feel about it, um, and no matter how we sort of feel about the mystery of, of who who really brought them to be, um, that's true. That's a kind of, at this point at least, like undeniable amazing fact that these things have immortality to them. And so you can't, you know, you you can bend them, twist them, shape them, cut them, put them on Mars, put them in World War II, you know, but it doesn't, you know, they're, sort, they're unkillable, which is really exciting. Um, you know, and it means that you can go see, uh, you know, you can, it means that a director, I think, and a, and a company can decide out of the m- multiple strands that make up every one of the plays, you know, sort of what it is that actually really galvanizes them now in this moment, in this production. And that's different, production to production. You could do uh, a Twelfth Night that has, you know, has to do with, say, the uh, the sort of brilliantly structured comedy of the play. You could do a Twelfth Night that really leans into the sort of darkness and cruelty and melancholy and the gaps in the play. Um, and you could do something in between. It's you know it, that's that's what's so exciting to me that the possibilities for a director's response you know are really sort of never ending. Shakespeare wrote Twelfth Night in 1601 and 1602. 
what makes it resonate for you today and what are you leaning into with your production? So I think one of the things that interests me so much about Twelfth Night is that, as far as we know, it was written very, very close to Hamlet, um, almost back-to-back, I think, to Hamlet in, in the, the canon. And, um, and to me, they actually, they're, they're sort of haunting each other in interesting ways. There's, uh, I mean, I just mentioned the, uh, the kind of brightness and also darkness of Twelfth Night. And I, I think that there is a, a kind of, there's something existential to the play. There's something, uh, you know, it's shaking hands with some of the same uh, questions of, um, of being, really, I think, that, that Hamlet is, but in this, you know, in, but inside a comic world, which means that we're going to have, you know, certain structures. There are going to be marriages. There are going to be great uh, revelations and discoveries. There are going to be reunions. Um, and, I, I want to say and instead of but, um, it's also a play that is is kind of beautifully full of irresolution that has, uh, you know, that uh, even as it manages to tie up all of the bows of its plot, it kind of leaves you with a sense of really sort of beautiful ambiguity. Um, for me, one of the things that's so that remains so fascinating and resonant about the play is that I really do think that there's a way in which it's about human loneliness and longing um, and the idea that sort of no matter who we are, uh, there is, you know, there's, there's a searching that's going on. It almost, it makes me, it makes me think of that. Um, I think it's that platonic myth, right, about kind of human beings originally being a kind of dual creature that was split apart and you go, go kind of wheeling through the universe searching for mm-hmm. your completion um, and whether or not you, you know, you ever think you find it, the question mark sort of always hovers and remains, right? Like, I, I think there's something so beautiful about the end of Twelfth Night where we've had all of this confusion, all of this, um, you know, all of this, these questions of identity um, and of gender performance and of, uh, and, you know, of how a self is performed. And then we end up seemingly very cleanly with these two couples, three couples, if you count uh, the, the, the downstairs marriage of uh, Toby and Mariah. Um, but even though it's very clean, you also end up with uh, two couples standing on stage staring at each other who, in a sense, know each other, but in a sense have never met each other before, in a sense are strangers. Um, and, you know, I think it's like one could be very disturbed by that, but I think in a way it's also a metaphor for that the idea that it is harder than we think to know another person and harder than we think to reveal ourselves and that a relationship and a life is a constant series of revealings and of masks falling and of learning someone else no matter how how well you think you may know them or know yourself. Um, so there's something, I think, very deep and very ambiguous uh, in a beautiful way about the way Twelfth Night reaches its uh, seemingly clean but also really mysterious uh, sort of deep conclusion that really mm. resonates with me. Wow. Yeah, uh, the twins, uh, just the notion of twins is sort of like at the root of that. Right, because the play begins with these 
this unit, right, this beautiful, united pair who were brought into the world together, ripped apart by this shipwreck. So there's something uh, already really deep and inherent in the play about searching for a lost part of yourself, um, which, which as, you know, in the twins is, is manifested in this other, in this mirror image, this other person. So your, your production has original music by the lobbyists, and I was reading that they describe themselves as a band and theater collective. How do they contribute to the production? Well, the lobbyists are, are just amazing. Um, they are, yes, so they are both a band and uh, a group of theater makers who work on an original theater pieces themselves. Um, and I know a couple of them from my college days, and actually one of them uh, from Charlottesville, Virginia, where I'm from. Um, and I, so early, early on, uh, when I knew that I was going to do this play, I knew that I wanted to work ideally with, with a band, with a pre-existing group of collaborative musicians who could really kind of bring that spirit, um, into the world. Uh, music is so central to the fabric of Twelfth Night. The very famous first line is, uh, if music be the food of love, play on, um, and it's woven throughout the play. There are, I don't know off the top of my head whether there are the most songs of any Shakespeare play, but it's it's up there. There are actual songs, um, you know, with uh, with their lyrics um, already given to you by Shakespeare all throughout the text. Um, and the play ends with a song called The Wind and the Rain, sung by the, the wise fool figure, Feste. Um, and to me, that song really is the kind of heart of the play and it's, um, and, and some of those uh, ambiguities that I was just talking about. Um, so I knew that I, I, I wanted music to be woven all the way throughout. Um, and I thought about the lobbyists because I had, I'd actually just gone to see a couple of their shows in New York. Um, and they're such a, a dynamic, uh, wonderful group of performers, both uh, theatrically and on their, you know, many, many amazing instruments. Um, and they've got a feel to me that felt, uh, they, they felt right for the show. They, they combine a lot of influences of um, American folk um, with, well, they're, in their own work, they're predominantly interested in American folk. But then for this play, they've sort of, uh, you know, as we talked about the world, expanded those influences into into British folk, into some rock and roll, into a little bit of punk, into some balladry. So there's really a kind of wide, uh, lovely uh, combination of genres of music happening in the play. Um, and the way that they brought it about is that they work very collaboratively. We all, um, the six mem members of the band and I, uh, started meeting way back in the fall and having conversations about the world and about the feeling we were sort of looking for and putting together a playlist of inspirational songs. Um, and then they would go off and they would, they would kind of divide up the tasks. Um, so Tommy, who is the music director uh, for this production and who's also playing Fest Day um, and who is a member of the lobbyists, uh, he sort of spearheaded the process and would say, you know, okay, well, why don't you work on a version of the song, Oh, Mistress Mine, and, you know, why don't you work on a version of the song, Come Away, Death, and why don't you work on a version of The Wind and the Rain? Um, and they would do various versions and bring them back in and play them together and take sometimes take elements from one and another and combine them or sometimes decide as a group, oh, yeah, we like that one best. Um, so everyone was really sort of bringing their, uh, their writing, their composition to the room, and then it was being thrown around and... Uh, 
built into the thing that we have. Um, and one of the things that actually excites me the most about what they've done is not only have they uh, scored music to pre-existing lyrics by Shakespeare, they've also taken some lyrical fragments in the play, some, some very little, you know, there are times that a character will just sort of say one line of a song in the dialogue and we don't have the rest of that song, but they've taken that single line and expanded that into a full uh, into a full song and into a piece of music that really is sort of, you know, unique and original to our world and our Illyria, which is really exciting. And are they on stage or you mentioned one of them at least plays a character? Yes. So three of the lobbyists are in the show as well, which is wonderful. Um, the There are, are a couple of characters that I think, uh, along with Feste, uh, the, uh, the jester figure, um, there were always a couple of characters in the show that sort of struck me as friendly characters for an actor-musician, kind of the, the type of role who might be able to sort of step in and out of the action and have that really interesting kind of metatheatrical relationship with the, with the goings-on of the play, you know, be able to be inside them and then be able to step outside of them and craft this musical uh, texture that everything lives inside. And we're very lucky that our cast is, is very musical. So um, along with the lobbyists, we have other people playing instruments too and really kind of building the, um, like that's, I, think, I, I think of it as another form of world building, um, you know, when the actors are, are outside of the, uh, you know, outside of the mimetic action, outside of the story, but are continuing to feed into the kind of arc of it with the hmm. music that they make. Interesting. It sounds wonderful. It sounds like a, a, a really fun production. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. I know you're in the last days of previews before opening night on Friday, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Of course. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. Twelfth Night by William Shakespeare, directed by Sarah Holdren, is at Two River Theatre through February 2nd. Visit tworivertheatre.org for tickets. For more about all of the arts, visit jerseyarts.com. I'm Susan Wollner for the Jersey Arts Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Jersey Arts Podcast is made possible by the New Jersey State Council on the Arts, supporting excellence and engagement in the arts since 1966.